Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I have a couple of announcements to make before I get into the podcast today. As some of you may or may not know, I have been writing articles for Training Peaks for the past year or so, and over the past couple of months, I've also been picked up and writing articles for Triathlete Magazine. Articles on there come out once a month, but in order to see them, you have to be a subscriber to get uh, in through the paywall, either to the Active Pass or Triathlete Pass programs. For the medical question today that I'm going to answer as part of this podcast, the subject is one that I'm actually going to expand upon in the article that is going to come out next week on the Triathlete Magazine website. And for that, you will have to be a subscriber in order to get through the paywall and be able to see it. So I'm happy to announce that for my listeners, I'm going to have a discount code that is going to give you 15% off either of those pass options. And I hope that you'll take advantage of this terrific offer and get yourself lined up with articles from me, as well as other great article writers in the world of triathlon and cycling. And there are lots of other great member benefits as well, depending on which of the pass options that you choose. You can get access to Velo News and get all kinds of interesting news and interesting articles about bicycling, as well as nutrition articles, articles for running, and of course, triathlon. So I hope that you'll take advantage of it. The uh, discount code will be mentioned at the end of the medical question. And again, that is a code that will get you 15% off either of the pay passes that will get you through the paywall on the Triathlete Magazine website. And the second announcement that I have is that I have decided to start a Patreon program to help support this podcast. As you may or may not know, it costs a fair amount of money to produce and get podcasts out there onto the internet and to you, the listeners. And at this point, I have, or to this point, I have chosen not to go ahead and get sponsorship. A big reason for that is because I value my credibility and think that in order to give really good reviews of all of the products and all of the different uh, aspects of health that I do on this podcast in order to do that in a way that doesn't seem to be influenced by any of the product makers that I have represented, uh, I have chosen not to get sponsorship that could in any way be seen as potentially influencing any of those reviews. That means, of course, that I've had to foot the bill entirely in order to keep this podcast going. Well, I'm hoping that if you like what you're hearing, then maybe today things can change and you'll consider supporting me at one of the three levels of support that are available on my Patreon website. TriDoc interns can choose to support at $3 a month. For the cost of a cup of coffee at a fancy coffee shop, I will give you a call out on the show. Those who choose to support at a slightly higher level are TriDoc residents, and they will give $5 a month, and for that, will get their name called out in appreciation, as well as receive two bonus episodes per year, for which they will have a say in selecting the content of those two episodes. And then TriDoc fellows really show their love for the podcast by supporting the show to the tune of $10 per month, and at that level receive all of the same benefits of TriDoc residents, but get four bonus episodes per year, which they also get to choose uh, the content for, as well as a dedicated live chat Q&A with me. All of my Patreon subscribers will have, of course, my undying gratitude, and I hope that if you enjoy this podcast and find it of value for you, that you'll consider becoming a supporter at whatever level makes sense for you.
And that Patreon website can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. All one word. On the show today, Brian Dunn is a successful age group triathlete living in Scottsdale, Arizona. This past weekend, he participated in the 70.3 race in Tempe, Arizona, the first Ironman-branded event to happen since COVID started causing race cancellations back in March of this year. He wrote about his experience and impressions of the event's mitigation efforts in terms of the COVID pandemic on the popular triathlon website Slow Twitch. So I reached out to him to see if he'd be interested in talking to me about it, and he graciously agreed. We talk about how the event went and what it might mean for racing in the future. First, though, I have a medical question to answer. We all know that training and racing for triathlon is a good thing for our health and wellness, and yet we also know from how we feel after an event that performing these long-distance races does take a toll on our bodies. The question is, how much damage is being done, and should we be concerned? Well, some researchers in Scandinavia have looked at this and have tried to come up with some answers, and I look at what they found, and that's coming up right now. Anyone who has participated in a long-distance triathlon knows that despite the amount of preparation that goes into being ready for the event, the toll that it takes on your body, it just plain hurts. At the end of 70.3, or 140.6 miles, the stiffness and soreness in your muscles is an undeniable reminder of what you've just gone through, and may make you wonder why it is that you put yourself through this kind of suffering in the first place. It doesn't matter that you're smiling ear to ear at the thought of what you just accomplished. At that moment, you really know how these races beat you up. Unfortunately, as many of us in the medical field are all too aware, that damage can be to more than just your muscles. The stresses of long-distance swim, bike, and run events can also impact critical organ function of the kidneys, the gut, and in the most serious of cases, even the heart. And that can result in serious illness or, in the worst cases, even death. The extent of such damage, though, it's really a matter of, such, of much dispute and the subject of a fair amount of research. So to better understand how long-distance triathlon affects our bodies, researchers have evaluated the levels of markers of tissue injury in the blood among athletes before they race, immediately after they finish, and then again in the days following the event. Now, the best of these studies have come from Scandinavia. And while those investigations have been really well designed and have provided a lot of data, how to interpret that data and what to do with the results remains a matter of much discussion. In 2017, a study from Sweden looked at competitors in the Ironman event that took place in Kalmar, Sweden. 30 athletes were evenly split between men and women, and they had blood samples analyzed before, immediately after, and then a week after the event to determine the levels of various markers of muscle, kidney, liver, and heart injury. And in addition, they also measured markers of general inflammation, such as white blood cell count. Now, in this small study, the authors found that all of the markers that they looked at were significantly elevated after the event when they were compared to before, and that all had returned to near baseline by a week later. Now, it's important to note that in all of these athletes, their baseline, the uh, marker levels before the event was uh, taking place, were all in the normal range. So the increase that was seen was pretty significant because if you compared that to a control, which they didn't do in this study, but if they had compared it to a normal population, one would expect that uh, you wouldn't see the same kind of increase with a person who wasn't undertaking an Ironman. 
Now, when they looked at all kinds of different factors that might have been associated with why these fact, why these markers were elevating, they couldn't really find a lot of reasons. Now, to be fair, the researchers didn't take a lot of data that they could have looked at to try and identify some of these correlations. So for example, they didn't look at how much were each of the athletes training. Did that correlate with whether or not, you know, these people had really big spikes in the markers. They also didn't look at how long were people out on the course. So race time and amount of training didn't really get looked at to see if it factored into how much there was an elevation in uh, marker elevation. But one thing that was identified to have a protective effect was whether or not you were a woman. Female sex was shown to be independent of muscle mass or body fat percentage, somehow protective on whether or not markers were uh, elevated. Now, women still had these pretty significant increases in markers of inflammation and cellular injury, but they didn't seem to be quite as high as in the men. Now, it wasn't clear why this was. Uh, It didn't seem to have to do with things like estrogen. It didn't seem to have to do with uh, any other of uh, the biological premises that the researchers could come up with. And in the end, the authors were simply unable to explain the finding, but it existed. A more recent study came out of Norway where researchers compared athletes competing in an Olympic distance triathlon in 2018 to those participating in the Norseman Extreme Triathlon across three different years, 2016, 17, and 18. So they basically took athletes from those three years, pooled the data, and compared them to athletes that uh, participated in an Olympic distance triathlon in the same region of Norway in one year. Now, analyses in these athletes covered some of the same markers as in the CalMAR study. But in this case, it included many more assays that are not necessarily associated with cell injury or inflammation, such as things like different electrolytes and even certain hormone levels. Here also, blood tests weren't done a week after the race, but rather before the race, immediately after the race, and then just one day after the race. Still, similar to what was found in the Swedish study, triathletes, again, had pretty significant increases in all of the important biomarkers of inflammation and cell injury, and when comparing the two groups, it wasn't terribly surprising to see that those who participated in the Norsemen had far higher elevations of those markers than did those who participated in the Olympic distance event. In addition, When the blood samples were remeasured one day later, Norseman participants had not demonstrated nearly as much recovery in those elevations as had participants in the standard distance, though all participants in either event did show some amount of recovery. Now, this is all somewhat concerning. Uh, We don't like to hear that, uh, you know, participating in a race results in elevation of inflammatory markers or markers of cell injury or even cell death. But it's still pretty unclear what to make of all of this. In all of the studies that have been done on this subject, the authors have focused on disease-oriented outcomes. In other words, lab markers. And and in none of these studies have patient-oriented outcomes, such as actual illness or death, been evaluated. In fact, in none of the studies that have been done to date have any of the subjects required hospitalization or treatment, nor have any died. So that raises the very legitimate question of what does any of this actually mean? The fact that we see these dramatic elevations in markers related to cell injury or inflammation or even cell death, if it doesn't translate to actual outcomes, does it really matter? 
As a result of this, many of people who have looked at this data have suggested alternative theories to explain why it is that markers become elevated like this that doesn't have to do with actual disease processes. These things, uh, these theories can be things like cell membrane leakage, cellular stresses without true injury, and even cardiac stretch related to increased venous return because of continuous muscle contraction. All of these things have been postulated and all can be supported to varying degrees as explanations for why markers rise without being associated with actual poor outcomes in the participants of these sports. Still, other researchers have pointed out that these theories are only one side of the argument, and that even in healthy individuals, when you see elevation of these kinds of markers, especially to this kinds of degrees, it's almost always associated with poor long-term outcomes, no matter what the cause and no matter what the short-term outcome. So the point being that even though none of the participants in these studies demonstrated any untoward effects within the context of the study itself, the fact that these markers were elevated the way they were could suggest that in the long run, these people were not necessarily going to do as well as might controls. And that's a study that hasn't been done. Well, one study that has been done looked at two different markers of heart cell injury and found some data that suggests that the increase in these markers might really be related to serious cell injury and even cell death. Again, though, None of the participants in that study had any important negative outcomes, and so, again, it's more data to suggest some concern, but no data to really suggest any, you know, alarm, because, again, cell markers are not necessarily related to poorer outcomes, because we're just not seeing those poorer outcomes. With all this in mind, and for these reasons, we need to take this kind of research seriously and ask ourselves whether or not the sensation that we feel in suffering over the course of a long-distance triathlon really is being translated into something potentially worse. For now, there's really no evidence to suggest that this is the case outside of just these laboratory markers, but the current evidence does suggest that it may be a possibility. And all of this is one more reason to be really sure that you see your physician if you ever experience some concerning symptoms, such as palpitations, shortness of breath, or chest pain. Now, if you're interested in learning more about this subject, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast today, I wrote an article for Triathlete Magazine's website that expands on what I discussed here and includes some additional interesting insights on some more data from the Norseman study. That article is going to come out next week and will require a paid subscription to get access. But as listeners to this show, you can use the promo code TRIDOC, that's T-R-I-D-O-C, all lowercase and with no space. When you check out, use that promo code in order to get 15% off either the triathlete or active subscription packages and get a year's membership to all of the best writing on all things related to endurance and multisport. That promo code again is TRIDOC, and the link to the website to make the purchase is in the show notes, which is on my show's website at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. I really hope that you'll check it out. If you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on the show, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com.
This past weekend saw the much-anticipated and long-awaited return to racing under the Ironman brand here in North America. WTC had introduced a host of changes to their pre-race and race day procedures given the reality of the pandemic and by all accounts had success in implementing them at recent events in Australia. But let's face it, Australia is not the United States. They have a significantly lower caseload than we do and a population that for the most part has actually approached this disease with the respect that it deserves. So with the Ironman 70.3 in Tempe this past weekend, I for one was very anxious to hear about how things went and whether or not there was reason for optimism going forward. Well, joining me to discuss the event and give his perspective is Brian Dunn, who penned a perspective that was published on the Slow Twitch website a couple of days ago. Brian is a 52-year-old age grouper who lives in the Scottsdale area and is married with one son. He's been in the sport since 2006 and has had an impressive resume since then, being to Kona three times and the 70.3 Worlds four times. He's the Vice President of Investments with Raymond James & Associates, but more importantly, is the Southwest Regional Captain for Team Zoot, who has sponsored him since 2008. But today, I've been able to get him to slow down just long enough to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Thanks for being with me today, Brian. Oh, thanks so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh, well, I guess uh, first and foremost, uh, why don't you give me sort of your perspective of how things went? Uh, how did? Well, actually, you know, let's back it up just a little bit. And how are you feeling leading up to this race? Did you feel comfortable with the idea that this was going to go forward uh, in Tempe? Yeah, it's funny you say that because I think I may have been the only one who really did believe that the race had a very good shot of uh, happening. I know that there was a um, Facebook group for both the full Ironman Arizona and Tempe 70.3 that my wife had me join because she's doing both those races. And I was reading what people were saying and there was a lot of negativity and I started pointing out that the city of Tempe showing specifically what their data was in terms of um, positivity rates and anything related to COVID, that their schools were starting to move into a position where they could open. And my attitude was, was don't count this out. Um, there's, a, there's still a very good chance this race can happen. I also happen to be friends with the race director, and I spoke with her a number of times, and uh, she continued to be very optimistic that the protocols and mitigation efforts that they were setting up uh, through WTC uh, would be acceptable. And I think it was Probably early September, um, we found out that the Tempe Special Events Governing Body had approved the event. So at that point, I mean, it, it, I was like, hey, this this is going to happen. And people were still very skeptical. Obviously, people overseas, people in other states, there were challenges. And I know a lot of people had already deferred out of the event. Um, registration remained open up until about a, a week before uh, last week. So they were and they were still taking entrance. Um I believe we, at the end of the day, we had 627 finishers of the race um, uh, on Sunday. And um, I think the, the the final athlete list showed about 950 participants, but it wasn't quite that high. And uh, that obviously goes a long way to helping mitigate the virus spread. If you can keep the numbers down from the normal 2000, uh, I know I read in your article, you talked about the transition area that they usually use for Ironman Arizona being used for this race. And therefore you're able to spread out those, you know, 900 people over a much larger area than would usually be the case. So they always, they always use that same area in Tempe beach park for both events. It's the same. It's the, the dimensions are the same. Um, but there, with having with so few people, it just made it very easy for them to um, establish uh, spacing on the racks of a, of a good four feet in between bikes and 
it was it was it was the most luxurious and spacious uh, transition area I've ever been to. <laughs> now uh, I know, like for me personally, I have not really been swimming very much. Pools have been open, but I just didn't feel terribly comfortable going until recently. Uh, what's the situation been like uh, for where you are? Have you been able to oh, swim? Yeah, over the course of the summer, um, most gym and uh, aquatic centers in the Metro Phoenix area were closed. Um, uh, in in you know going along with the CDC guidelines and the state of Arizona's guidelines, Doug, the our governor had closed all gyms, all those facilities. Uh, my wife and I and my son, though, we were up at a uh, our home in the White Mountains of Arizona in a town called Sholo, and our our home is on a, a country club property called Torion. They have a 50 meter pool that was open, so we were able to swim three times a week without issue the entire summer. By the time we left and came back here to start my son's schooling in, uh, initially online and then in person. By then, the aquatic centers, and um, in, in my case, I swim at LA Fitness, they, they, had all, they had all reopened at that point, so we sort of never missed the beat. Okay. All right. Well, good fortunate situation for you guys. Uh, all right. Let's talk about the race itself. What uh, was uh, the sort of packet pickup like? How did that work? So... We received instructions via the athlete guide that it described how the packet pickup situation would work. There was no athlete meeting that was canceled and just done online in a virtual in a with a video online that people could watch. Uh, we were told we were given a an opportunity to select the time that we would come down to do our registration and our bike drop off. All of this occurred on Saturday. There was no events or activities on Friday, so my wife and I selected nine to ten a.m. Um, we got down there around nine. And it was there weren't a lot of people there at that point. The entire athlete village area was completely fenced off with controlled entrances for both athlete only areas and for spectator areas. Uh, temperatures were being taken. Hand sanitizer was available. Masks were requi required to enter the area. So we found the athlete only uh, registration line and we it, there was no line. We, we sort of walked right up the they had tables set up to scan your QR code initially to get you started moving through the registration process. The volunteers were standing at a table with a plexiglass partition that was about two and a half feet high, I would say. Um, and we were given a pen with a small rubber ball on the back end so that we could both sign any documents or waivers that we needed to once we got to the registration tent and or use it to uh, enter data on a on a tablet if we had to make any changes to our re registration. So I thought that was a nice touch. They had pens with the Ironman name on it, all available for you to take to use. You then rolled your bikes around to a secure area to valet them. We were given a ticket. A ticket was attached to the bike so that we could leave the bikes there while we went through the registration tent. The registration tent, again, because it was early, was empty. Um, the table setup was similar to the ones at the main entrance with the plexiglass. The volunteers would, would take our information, get our packet, bring it out, make any changes we needed to make on any anything as far as uh, emergency contacts or whatever. There was a, a procedure in regards to 70.3 World Championship slots for the race in St. George next year where you were asked if you wanted to be considered for one. I believe they did that in an effort to sort of, sort of weed out people that weren't interested in a 70.3 World slot so that when they did the slot allocation, which is happening, starting to happen today via email, that they could maybe lean, like limit the limit the amount of emails they had to send out. But I guess there, it was a little catch as catch can. The volunteers didn't quite understand the process. P 
people weren't asked. So I think so now they're just going to basically send them out to everyone and do a traditional roll down, um, just do it online. So, but we did we did that. We got our bags and um, our t-shirts and um, rolled went back into the uh, valet, got the bikes, rolled the bikes towards the transition. They had racks set up outside of transition, so you can attach your numbers and get everything squared away. And, and they had a couple of volunteers there to make sure that the numbers were in place, the places they wanted. They were very, they were very specific this year about where they wanted the numbers. There was no, you know, cutting your number and putting it someplace other than either the seat tube, the top tube, or the down tube, and that was it. That, they wanted to be very, very clear about that. So, which was fine. And then we just rolled our bikes into transition and found our spots and racked them up and left. And again, masks required at, at, in all areas within the actual Ironman village area with where the expo is going on. The Ironman store was there. The tent was set up. Um, they were limiting the number of people that could enter. You would queue up outside of it, standing six feet apart. When people would leave, they were allowed other people to come in. Um, when you checked out, and they also had lines or uh, signs on the floor directing traffic. So it was similar to what you see at grocery stores nowadays, where it says one way. Um, so uh, it wasn't crowded at all. Um, people, you know, they, again, limited number of people inside. So that was well done. The expo itself is very, very limited and not particularly, you know, well attended. Uh, a lot of companies, Zoot included, had to, had to sort of determined that they wanted to wait and see what this sort of looked like, how this worked before maybe committing to come back here in November for Ironman Arizona. Um, I shot a video actually and, and sent it to, to Zoot, to uh, Speedfill, to Form uh, Goggles. They all wanted to see what the expo looked like and to make decisions about how they want to handle uh, Ironman Arizona next month. But uh, yeah, we, so we, we racked our bikes and we got out of there. I, I would say it was by far and away the, the fastest I've ever gotten through the entire registration process. So I, I want to unpack some of the things that you said, because uh, it's really interesting to me. And I, I find myself wondering how much, uh, you know, this is actually going to shape future events, even after COVID is gone, because it seems to me like, you know, we've spent all these years filling out these silly, like, you know, paper forms when we go to registration, and it really just gums up the works. And I've always wondered why haven't they used tablets in the past? And why don't they schedule people to come in to registration at uh, fixed times? Because it would really, that 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 would be a lean way uh, to use the engineering term to get people to move through quickly. Having the athlete events as a video uh, thing also. I mean, just do it as a Zoom event and just have people ask their questions if they need to. Uh, clearly, uh, sponsors who are there in the expo uh, want people to come. And so that obviously is going to mitigate the likelihood of having athlete meetings uh, online or as a video in the future. But some of these uh, things that you're mentioning in terms of the registration process certainly sound like they could be the way of the future. And I hope to see Ironman embrace some of these. And again, like you said, it was pretty empty, I think, Partly because there were just so few people, uh, you know, half of it's usually a two thousand person race, isn't it? No, it 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 hasn't had those kind of numbers for a while. I'd say I think last year in two thousand nineteen we had twelve hundred fifty finishers. Oh, so, so you were at two thirds. Uh, nine hundred. You're about uh, two thirds. Well, again, we had six hundred twenty seven finishers. That nine fifty number was inaccurate. So I, I I think it's fair to say there were, and, and I don't think we had, even though it was a hot day, we maybe only had a handful of DNF. So better to call it a six hundred fifty starting. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about race morning then. Uh, So when you racked the bikes, you didn't have to leave your running gear and your bike gear. You got to bring that on the race morning. So what was race morning like? We showed up. um, The 
transition over to 5 a.m. Uh, we sort of rolled in around 5 30 um, and it was it was pretty active at that point um, a, everyone again wearing masks it, I would say at, at this point it felt very much like a normal WTC Ironman event morning um, with the exception of the masks and the separate and the space and the in the ample amount of space you had for your transitionary to set up but other than that uh, the porta potty lines were were socially distanced and at six feet apart with tape on the ground to make that clear. Um, so we set up our transitions as normal, said hello to our friends and uh, teammates, and began to walk about a 400 meter walk to get to the swim start, um, which is on the west side of Tempe Town Lake, west of the transition area. What was nice uh, is they they set up partitions and barriers along this walkway. So, so can I just interrupt for a second? Cause I've done Ironman Arizona in the past, but I did it when it was a mass start. I did it the last yeah. year. So where, uh, I know where we came out of the water for Ironman Arizona. So where is the start? Is it before the bridge where the spectators used to gather to watch? No, it's, it's, it's to the West side of the lake underneath. You walk underneath both of the bridges, the, the railroad bridge and okay. the, uh, light rail bridge. And it's at the it's by the arts center, the okay. new arts center that was built about five six years ago, seven okay. years ago. Um, so you walk. So basically, you got on you got into Tempe Town Lake on the far west side, and then you swam heading east and exited on a, at a boat ramp that's about two hundred meters to the west of Mill Avenue Bridge. Okay. So if you can sort of visualize it, so we whereas Iron Man, Iron Man traditionally used to head. Uh, west, uh, east, and then turn and head back up, and then and then in. Yeah, um, I can't recall which which direction they went last year, but anyway. So yeah, that's so that was the direction. And, and again, the, this the the swim it was very well organized. They ha- in in keeping with WTC's new policy of rolling starts, that actually really was helpful for an event like this to to maintain the mitigation and the and the distancing because they had they had corrals of people set up for the, uh, their anticipated finishing time. Anyone under 35 minutes, though, we all were just sort of lined up in two lines, six feet apart, and we must have been 200 feet long of people. 35. Um, usually the usually they start, because I've done, I mean, most of the races I've done, they start the lines like 28 minutes, and then... They do. So, know. yeah, there was, so to, much to my surprise, I didn't realize they were doing this, um, so that was a surprise to me, because I'm, I'm a 30, 31-minute swimmer, and so I was walking past the 35 and under and all of a sudden I realized that's it there they didn't do any more delineations huh. of time after that so I was now lined up towards the middle to back of this field even though I should probably have been further up, up in front and everybody I mean, everybody's wearing masks at this point everyone is wearing masks in their wetsuits just waiting um two lines and uh, as when the race started they would send in one athlete and five seconds later another from the other line and just alternate back and forth. And it took me from where I was standing about seven minutes to get in the water. Okay. So, uh, and then you, de- did you have somewhere to just drop your mask before you went in the water? Yeah. As you, as you stood on this, actually funny story, you, when you stood right up there next to the starting, the gal who was starting people and timing it, I was so preoccupied with just making sure all my, everything was set up and I was ready to go. When she told me to go, I realized I was still wearing my mask. <laughs> so I had to sort of, and there was a garbage can right there. I had to rip it off and tear it and throw it in there because it was, it's up under your swim cap. Yeah. I put my swim cap over my ears. So yeah, but the, the idea would have been for me to 
five seconds when the guy next to me went or the gal next to me went, I should have just taken it off or, or gotten and thrown it away, but I forgot. Gotcha. All right. So you get the swim, you get out of the water. I assume you're not masked again when you get out of the water and go into transition. You're now, yeah. that's the, you don't put a mask on again until you finish the race. Correct. That's correct. Yep. That's right. Uh, and then when you get out of the water and back into transition, there's few, if any volunteers. Oh no, there, there was plenty of volunteers. I mean, there are plenty of people to make sure that you're going, you, because it's a relatively, it's a kind of a long run to get back into transition. There's a carpet set up, you run on the sidewalk, you run on the grass a little bit. So there was there are plenty of volunteers who were wearing masks to direct and make sure people are going in the right direction. But once you get into transition, then you get your, your shoes, you put your helmet on, grab your bike, and you, you just you go out. It, it was very much a normal sort of T1 situation. Okay. And then uh, on the bike course, were there aid stations? How did those There work? were. Because this is a three-loop course, there were two aid stations available um, at two different points on, of the course. So um, I, I never didn't use any of the aid stations on the bike because I was self-sufficient. However, people were using the aid stations. The volunteers were masked. They were wearing gloves. They would hand you a bottle if you approached and let them know what you wanted. Um, some people said that the bottles were not opened. Um, I'm not sure, and in, in talking to the race director, I thought they were not going to be opening bottles to make, make to make sure people felt comfortable that they were the first ones to be opening the bottle. However, later in the race, I think people were asking volunteers to open bottles because they were getting, some people were getting them opened. Um, but Either way, they, the, the, the volunteers sort of just try to stay back yeah. and help people. Most people that I saw, anyway, they, all, they seem to stop and get what they needed yeah. and then carry on. Yeah. And then on the run, uh, aid stations there? Aid stations on the run uh, every, you know, approximately every mile. I mean, self-serve or? Self, so, so, yeah, self-serve. So the tables were set up. They were, it was identical to the traditional race. It was a water table, Gatorade table, Red Bull table, nutrition table, Coke table, ice table, water, and you're out. But you so, just took your own. And, and the volunteers, their, their responsibility just was to continue, make sure the cups were filled, to tell you what was on their table. They stood back um, behind the tables and wore masks. Um, so yeah, it, was, it, was, it just meant that you, as an athlete, you just simply couldn't blast through an aid station, you know, getting handed Right. Your nutrition, you had to make sure you, you took the time to slow down, get it, um, and, and make sure you got what you needed. And then what about the finish line experience? Uh, it was the, the same. You finished. Um, you were not handed a medal. You went, walked over to a table, and you picked your own medal up. You removed your own timing chip um, and put it into the to their buckets of disinfectant. And then when... I felt comfortable that I had some water and I sat down for a few minutes under a tent just to get out of the heat and talk to a couple of the other racers that had finished ar around me. Um, as I was leaving the finishing shoot area, I was provided a mask and, uh, which it was great. Cause oh, I, I should have mentioned in the morning in transition, when you, when you were entering transition, they also gave you a mask to wear to the swim start because they appreciate that some people have masks that they actually like. That you know, they're like yeah. I, we we have a we have a team zoot mask that matches our kid, and so I wouldn't have wanted to take that to the swim star and throw it away. So they provided a, a traditional, more surgical type paper mask, um, and they did the same thing at the finish, so that I was able to walk out of there wearing a mask um, before I was had the opportunity to go get mine that I had brought. So just a couple of questions to finish up. Uh, I know they didn't do awards. I guess that's done after the fact. 
Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna mail awards, and uh, like I mentioned in regards to these seventy point three worlds uh, slots, they are doing that allocation today. They're gonna begin it. So by the email. process is yeah via, via email. They're gonna every they're gonna send out emails to everyone who has a guaranteed slot, and if they they have forty eight hours to accept it and pay for their 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 slot on active dot com, and if they don't, it will roll, and they'll notify the next person. And um, spectators. What was that like? It was it, it, again because of the lower participation numbers, less spectators. The the race director asked that all of the local tri club teams, including my team Zoot, that we not bring down pop up tents, that we not create areas where people might gather. Having said that, you know it, it's hot. I mean, we, we was it was about ninety when when people were on the run and got to about ninety five. Most a lot of people were huddled under the bridges just because there was no shade and they just needed to get out of it. Spectators, were, for the most part, were wearing masks outside of the venue area. Um, some weren't, but some were, but most were. Um, and if you wanted to enter the the expo venue area, you had to have a mask on. They had security there to make sure. Well, it sounds like the event was really you know run very well i mean it, it sounds to me like you felt pretty safe uh, throughout the whole thing yeah I uh, go ahead I was gonna say, i'm you know I'm, i am friends with the, with the race director and you know i'd have a lot of conversations with her um and i do want to i do want to give them a tremendous amount of credit since wtc has been acquired once again this year um and because of the pandemic there have been a lot of layoffs and they're working with a very very thin amount of staffing um and, but she's been around for a long time. She used to be part of the North American sports uh, company when they ran Ironman Arizona, as well as a bunch of other race Ironman race branded races here in the U.S. And they just did a, they just did a great job with the resources they had, and uh, they're very excited to be able to put on Ironman Arizona next month. So, to your listeners, I would say if you're signed up for that event and you're you you are planning on coming, keep training because that event is going to happen. Did you get the sense that most of the people who participated were locals? Uh, in locals, meaning Arizona, the um, sort of Southern Cal people, um, Nevada, New Mexico. Yeah, there, there was definitely it was definitely a very much a Southwest uh, event. And it, but I should I should say it kind of always always has been. We we've always had it's always had a big local draw. It's always had a big re- local regional draw. But you don't get a lot of people from the Northeast necessarily coming down for it. Um, or, or a lot of foreign participants. Yeah, the reason I ask is just because, you know, the two things that kind of, you know, in my mind are still unclear. Uh, I mean, I'm really excited to see that they were able to do this and to see that they were able to do it safely. But the two things that sort of, you know, stick in my mind as being uncertain are travel to these events, not so much the actual plane ride, but then once you get there, you know, staying in hotels, going to restaurants, uh, you know, that that to me is pretty high risk, especially in areas where there's big case numbers. And then the second thing is what happens when you have a big event, uh, an event that actually has 2000 people. So, you know, the next event on the calendar uh what sorry the first events in the calendar in 2021 are like oceanside that traditionally is a very large event i'm signed up for that one um and you know for me that means flying there that means staying in a hotel that means figuring out how to get food uh and that's a usually a significantly larger event so those are the things that I find myself wondering about and wondering how it's going to go forward. But I am very encouraged to hear how well it has gone. Uh, and I'm hopeful that um, it's a sign that uh, we can get back to racing and that, you know, both F- Florida 
and Arizona Ironmans will go ahead and hopefully go ahead safely for the participants and for the sake of our sport, which let's face yeah. it, we all want to succeed. Um, I should finish just by saying uh, I looked us up and you and I are in the same age group and have uh, met once uh, on the race course. Uh, you got the better of me by four minutes in uh, the 70.3 in Indian Wells in 2018. Oh. <laughs> so uh, we shall have to meet again to have a rematch at some point <laughs> in in better times I, I, I love that race i i actually deferred into it and then it got canceled obviously but i really that was the first time my wife and i went last year and we, were, we had a good time i did not enjoy the cold water but other it than that other than that i did enjoy <laughs> yeah. the race yeah it was cold <laughs> well brian thank you uh, so much for joining me to discuss this today and congratulations on your age group win uh, on you. the weekend uh and will you be taking that slot to saint george I will. I've, you know, whenever the 70.3 Worlds is back in the U.S., I'm pretty keen to do it. Um, I enjoy the event, and uh, I, although I wouldn't necessarily travel f- to the event if it was overseas, just because it's, I'd rather just go on vacation overseas. But uh, when it's here in the U.S., I always try and attend it. All right. Well, I'm scheduled to do that one next year. I had to defer out of New Zealand, so uh, maybe we shall meet there. Uh, Brian Dunn, uh, a uh, stellar age grouper in Phoenix, uh, in the Scottsdale area, who uh, competed in the uh, 70.3 Arizona this past weekend. Thanks again for joining me on the TriDog Podcast. It was my pleasure. I'm really grateful to Brian for joining me on the podcast to discuss his experience at the race in Tempe this past weekend. And I have to say, I was really glad to hear that it went off as well as it did and that the measures that the WTC have implemented in the race did go off, um, you know, pretty much as planned. It gives me a lot of hope that uh, this can be done in the future in 2021, hopefully as case numbers begin to come down. I was a little bit surprised, though, to hear Brian's optimism about uh, the potential for Ironman Arizona next month. He uh, seemed to feel like uh, case numbers in the Phoenix area were low. I had a look at the John Hopkins site, uh, the site that compiles COVID case numbers around the country. And in point of fact, uh, the numbers in the Phoenix area are actually not so rosy. They're actually rising at a fairly alarming rate, uh, similar to what can be seen in other parts of the country at this time. As we are heading into the cooler temperatures, uh, true, that's not really the case in Arizona where temperatures remain warm. But as we have seen elsewhere across the country right now, we're seeing this uh, really worrisome fall surge of COVID case numbers. And so uh, those numbers have uh, begun to spike in uh, quite an alarming fashion in the Phoenix area, just like they are elsewhere across the country. So the safety and the predictability that an Ironman race will take place in Tempe next month, I think, is not necessarily as clear as uh, Brian would hope and uh, as I would hope for his wife uh, and for the rest of the competitors as well. So keep your fingers crossed that things will get better, but um, the reality of the situation remains a little more um, unclear and fluid, to be sure. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You can find archives of all of the shows as well as a handy collections feature where I've grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode or do you have questions that you'd like me to answer on future episodes? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. 
If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. You can also consider becoming a supporter on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport and another medical question for me to answer. Until then, train hard, train hard.